And I think whether we go into contemplative life or whatever we do with our prayer, we are fundamentally building on that yearning, that need, that longing, that asking, which is what Jesus instructs us about. One of the things I like about the larger Renovari community is our shared history. We're a scattered community from all over. Folks who found shared writing, teaching, and events to be a catalyst for a deeper spiritual life. And I love hearing the stories about various people and events. I often hear stories about one event in particular, the 99 Houston International Conference. It was the year a new book came out, and Renovari decided to focus its first large event on this book. They rented out a large convention center downtown. I remember once on a hike, my dad mentioned that if things didn't go well, attempting to put on an event of this size had the potential to bankrupt the organization. But everyone believed in this new book, and they thought it was important to help get the word out. The book turned out to be Dallas Willard's seminal work, The Divine Conspiracy. The structure of the event was quite simple. Each speaker focused their talk on a different chapter from the book. Chapter 7, The Community of Prayerful Love. Who else to teach on this chapter than the author of multiple wonderful books on the subject of prayer? Longtime ministry team member, Emily Griffin. In the early years, Emily was a regular speaker for Renovare. She's someone who speaks out of the depths of her own experiences, drawing from years of studying devotional classics and with a carefully crafted prose that only seems to come from a career writer. And as we continue this month working with the contemplative stream, I'm delighted to share this talk with you. On a personal note, Emily and I spoke together at my very first Renovare conference. At that event, she really encouraged me as a writer and speaker. I suspect had it not been for her enthusiastic support, I may have never found myself in a place to consider leaving my career as a social work professor to come work for Renovare. Thank you, Emily. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovare Podcast. You'll notice after Emily's talk, we went ahead and left the question and answer time with her, Dallas, and Richard. Now here's Richard, introducing Emily Griffin some 20 years ago. See if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. My wife, Carolyn, always teases me about the very first time that I met Emily Griffin and her husband, Bill, because I was scared to death. The author of Turning, a book on conversion, Oh, why couldn't I think of a title like that? The author of Clinging, a book on prayer. Why didn't I think of a title like that? And then her husband, for years, uh, senior editor of Macmillan Publishing. When I met him, religion writer for Publishers Weekly, for those of you who don't know, that's big stuff among writers. Then we met. Dallas, Texas it was, in the Adolphus Hotel. And it was like just this meeting, this meeting. It was so wonderful. And since those days, Emily and Bill are both part of a little group, a national group of writers that I'm part of, and it's just been a delight. Her thinking on prayer as a person who's an advertising executive, 
wrote a book called The Reflective Executive, uh, who leads seminars on prayer, who does advertising campaigns for Alcoa Aluminum. That's an interesting combination, isn't it? And she's now with us and has been on our team some years. Emily Griffin, it's a delight to have you. Would you welcome Emily Griffin? Thank you, Richard. You know, you're not the only one who can be intimidated by meeting another writer. I, too, was. Thank you so much for that. And I would like just to express my own joy and gratitude at being with you, being part of the Renovari movement, but specifically this meeting in which there has been so much learning, so much enthusiasm, so much hunger, so much joy, uh, so many questions, uh, so much to enrich all of us, and so I'm feeling the lift of that, the enthusiasm. And I want to also express particular gratitude for the book, The Divine Conspiracy, and for Dallas Willard's courage in in writing it and disclosing so much of himself in that book. Such a personal book flowing out of his own experience. And in his chapter 7 on the community of prayerful love, we see a lot of his own prayer life flowing there. And so that's a, a great resource for all of us, and so I want to express gratitude for that. About prayer, I have always found or felt that prayer is just built into the structure of ourselves. It is a a hunger very, very deep in our natures, very deeply embedded in the human heart. And I think most of us begin to learn to pray out of need or perhaps even out of emergency situations or times of sorrow or difficulty. When I was thinking about this, I remembered that when I was 20 or 21 years old, I was in an earthquake in Mexico City. It was a rather severe earthquake. It was seven degrees on the Richter scale. And you know earthquakes, if anyone's ever been in one, they're measured in seconds, not in minutes. But they seem to go on for a very long time. And during that earthquake, I prayed from the beginning to the end, And no one had to instruct me, now it's time to pray. (laughs) But there's another kind of prompting to prayer which comes out of the wonderfulness of things. And very often this experience comes to us so early that we don't know what to call it. We don't have any language to go with it. When the American writer and Cistercian monk, Thomas Merton, was about five years old, he was standing outside in uh, New York City in the borough of Queens in what was farmland and he saw birds flying and he said to his father Father, all the birds are in church can we go to C.S. Lewis describes a moment of great longing and beauty next to a currant bush on a summer's day only many years later was he able to connect this experience of sacredness with the existence of God but it was an experience of longing and of yearning. For myself, I can remember being about 10 years old in a summer camp on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. And on Sunday evenings, it was kind of a Renovari experience. We'd all get together and we'd sing. Out on the pier over the uh, Gulf of Mexico with the sun setting and the darkness coming and everyone singing together. And uh, one hymn in particular I remember called Jubilate that we sang. And there's a sense of joy that comes in a flash at moments like this without warning. It is God calling us and speaking to us about his love. And gradually we begin to understand and to express our love in return. But as we get older and more serious about the disciplined life, we know we have to go beyond spontaneous moments like that and emergency alarm bells. Building a prayer life that has shape and structure and one that can be maintained over time. I want, though, to to remind you of something that Dallas Willard says in his chapter on prayer. He says, however far we go in learning about prayer, we are fundamentally building on request. The heart of prayer, he says, is request. 
And I think whether we go into contemplative life or whatever we do with our prayer, we are fundamentally building on that yearning, that need, that longing, that asking, which is what Jesus instructs us about. Now, we want to apprentice ourselves to Jesus in prayer as in every other thing and take him as our model and our teacher, remembering to an extent or trying to reconstruct what his own prayer life was like, that he was brought up in a devout Jewish home in a society dedicated to a disciplined life of prayer. And he took part, no doubt, in formal worship or uh, some kinds of spiritual exercises at least three times a day. But then in everyday life, uh, there was always a blessing to be said or a prayer to be said over every single activity, whether it's the breaking of the bread or the healing of a person, Jesus would always pray as he did these things. But even at that, he couldn't get enough of prayer. He still had a greater hunger than the, the culture he lived in could satisfy. So he looked for times of quiet and solitude. And we find some of these mentioned in the New Testament in Mark, in the morning, this would be very early before the day began, while it was still dark, Mark 1.35, he got up and went out to a deserted place. We see instances of this over and over again in Mark 6 after the feeding of the 5,000, in Matthew 14 after he dismissed the crowds and went up to a, a lonely place on the mountain to pray, and the disciples came after him. And then again in Luke, as the word spreads, Jesus has to withdraw in order to have times of prayer, that, that he can really communicate with his Father and after the healings and so forth. So we understand that Jesus was always engaging himself with the life of prayer. And it wasn't a random activity with him. It was the way he lived, always in touch with his Heavenly Father, and you know that statement he makes, for I know, Father, that you always hear me. So this was an ongoing exchange. It's what some of the great spiritual writers have called union, a kind of connectedness, being with God all the time. And Jesus wanted us to have this kind of life. That's what his teaching was all about. As Dallas tells us so nicely that the reign of God is available right now. Now, when we look at prayer the way Jesus did, we see it's something very large and freeing. It's not a little thing, but it's a big thing that we can dwell inside of and enjoy and rest inside of. But nevertheless, one that requires our constant, ongoing cooperation and rededication and beginning, new beginnings in prayer over and over again. Let's look at some of the creative opportunities that we might engage in for entering into the life of prayer. Festooning, that's this, uh, an expression that C.S. Lewis used. And I think he thought he had invented this, but I'm not sure he did at all. His idea was to take some familiar prayer that you already know, like the Lord's Prayer, and decorate it like a Christmas tree, festoon it, embroider it with extra requests and ideas and reflections of your own as you go along so that the prayer becomes more elaborated uh, than it was before. And one of the things that I noticed when I was looking over the chapter that Dallas Willard's book has on prayer is that there's a great deal of creative appropriation that we do to make prayer our own kind of prayer. And I think that's what C.S. Lewis was suggesting, to take a prayer which has belonged to the whole community of the faithful and make it your own, seize it, and involve yourself in it in a particular way. Uh, in, uh, for example, in Dallas Willard's translation of the Lord's Prayer in the Divine Conspiracy, which is in fresh language, there he's making the prayer fresh again for himself. And slowed down prayer, he also tells us about having engaged in this use of the Lord's Prayer slowly, in which you might take a phrase or two and and then reflect or live within that particular phrase for a time, and only slowly go on to the next part of the prayer, and be led more and more deeply into the presence of God as you do this, breaking it down phrase by phrase. There are prayers of a single phrase, Abba, or Yahweh, some like to use nowadays, although in ancient times that name of the Lord was rarely spoken. Or Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And there are some who say that this one kind of praying in which there is a repetition and a breathing, not a vain repetition, but a repetition that leads us more deeply into the presence of the Lord, that this is a very, very helpful way of prayer. Lectio Divina, I will join Richard Foster in the use of the occasional Latin phrase. Lectio Divina really means holy reading, but it's a particular style of prayer which has been used from ancient times and into our own, and we have many wonderful instructors on this. And you notice how all these ways of praying that I'm suggesting are attached to Scripture and the, the Word of God in some way. And Lectio Divina, we will take a text and we will allow ourselves to be led into the presence of God through the text in a very simple process of yielding to the presence of God in the text itself. Now, to actually practice Lectio Divina, you will need a little instruction and you will find that there are many wonderful teachers of that. But it is a way of dwelling in the presence of the Lord through a closeness to his word. Meditation, very often, uh, there are so many different ways of meditation, but the one that I'm fondest of allows me to take a Bible story and identify with one of the people in the story. I've had a wonderful experience with Hannah and Samuel, entering into their lives briefly and acting out the story in my prayer so that I am called into the experience of God through them and through their life. And so this can be a very vivid style. The Psalms, of course, are one of our greatest schools of prayer, and this was the prayer book that Jesus himself used. So when we are using the Psalms as our school of prayer, it's our gymnasium, our climbing bars, our workout, because all of the emotions, the whole range of relationship to God is well represented in the Psalms. And they've been burnished by the experience of thousands and thousands of prayers through the centuries. And as we enter into the Psalms, we enter also into the experience of the whole communion of saints. All these styles have a lot of value, and they are styles. They do not have or bring any particular graces with them. It is the Lord who brings the change in us when we are willing to yield ourselves to prayer. So let us remember always that God is doing the leading and we are doing the responding in and through these particular methods or styles. But we always have the great teachers of prayer to caution us against becoming over-entranced with any method or giving too much credit to method. Meister Eckhart is only one of the many who says, do not restrict yourself to any one method. Those who receive God thus do him wrong. They receive the method and not God. It is God whom we are seeking, and we approach him in any of these many different ways and many more that I'm sure you already know about and are using. Environments and situations may also lead us closer to the Lord if we use them well. And for some of us, natural beauty may be uh, a wonderful way. There are some who just love to sit in a garden or to bring flowers into the house and to find that that beauty uh, engages their attention and makes them praise the wonderfulness of God's work. Uh, I have had, if you're in a retreat setting or if you're in an outdoor setting and you're praying, you may find that the stones speak to you. Uh, I had a wonderful experience at a retreat house in Colorado where I was on a stony path and then I heard in my, in my heart and in my mind that the angels had charge over me lest I dash my foot against a stone. So the environment, the natural environment, may lead us back into scripture, which is in our hearts already. If our heart is with a city, this is often a very good place to pray. I made a retreat once on Wall Street in order to specifically on economic power. But while I was there, I was also able to enter the church in which George Washington prayed in that great uh, environment in lower Manhattan and uh, to see the place where Washington said farewell to his officers and in this wonderful place to be, which was so urban and so noisy but so full of history and so full of uh, uh, meaning, was for me a wonderful place of prayer. Uh, 
Someone mentioned to me just moments ago Sister Helen Prejean and her work in the St. Thomas Housing Project in New Orleans. And I also had a prayerful experience of pilgrimage through the Desire Housing Project. Not nearly as much a place of power as Wall Street. Nevertheless, it is possible to give our heart to the cities that we love by praying in their most difficult places. This is also a call to prayer. Solitude and silence, I think, have been mentioned by many of our speakers as wonderful resources for us to use. And I loved the silence at this meeting. After the the blowing of the shofar, the silence was so moving, so powerful, so palpable. So we see that silence can come to us in so many different contexts and lead us. Uh, But uh, often going apart, as Jesus did, becomes a way of being more connected with the lives that we already have, not more separated. Anne Morrow Lindbergh wrote a wonderful book, Gift from the Sea, out of a month of solitude at the shore. But she spent the time reflecting on her marriage and what it meant to her, so that this apartness was really for the sake of others and not only for herself. God leads us into deeper understandings sometimes when we take time to be silent or to be apart. The poet Patricia Hample speaks of going into the hush where the voice can be heard. And Henry Nouwen says that silence is a destination, a space where we can hear God speak to us. About praying with works of art, I noticed that some of you had copies of Henry Nouwen's wonderful book about the prodigal son. He enters into the story of the prodigal son through a great painting of the prodigal son. And for many of us, uh, a great work of art can be a leading into prayer, if we use it that way. For me, at various times, uh, one painting that has spoken to me very strongly is Stanley Spencer's painting about the general resurrection, the resurrection at Cookham. And I only recently saw it again in its full splendor, and it reminds me that I, too, am entering into the resurrected life. Friendship, I think we all know the the tremendous power of spiritual friendship, and Renovari groups, of course, honor that and seek to foster and facilitate that, seeing Christ in the other person. Also, our own transformation becomes clearer to us through the eyes of others. And this is the community of prayerful love that Dallas Willard is speaking of. Community in a larger sense is also a way to prayer. I mentioned the cities. Uh, Also, the fact that groups form. This is an expectation of the kingdom, that groups form and celebrate the life of the Lord in a special way. Community styles of prayer, like the Quaker style of of praying, can become very intense styles of prayer in which the presence of God comes among us in ways that are very transforming to us. And there are some individuals who join their prayer to the life of the nation or to the life of the city. In Richmond, we heard people praying specifically for the needs of the city of Richmond and joining themselves to the life of the city in a special way. So, work also can be a wonderful ground of our praying. I love the story that is told of Simone Weil, uh, who is, was a great writer on prayer who died just at the beginning of the Second World War. Simone Weil prayed the, the uh, Lord's Prayer in Greek. And I, I can't do that. I'd like to learn. And when she prayed the Lord's Prayer in Greek, she was on a grape farm in a vineyard picking grapes. And she felt very intensely the presence of Christ in the middle of the grape picking, in the middle of the Greek uh, Lord's Prayer. And this is an example of work and prayer in unity. But there are many, many stories. Janice Brewey, who is a a Roman Catholic sister and a consultant on midlife spirituality, tells a story of finding the Lord in the green beans when she was picking the green beans. She suddenly had an intense experience of being loved in the middle of a very simple domestic activity of work. And so we always want to be aware that the Lord can speak to us literally 
where we are and not exclude our work from our life of prayer. Adventures. I like adventures. I like to plan them, but then I like to be surprised by things that I didn't plan. Retreats offer this. Pilgrimages can bring us into bounteous experiences that we didn't know would be totally ours until we got there. So we need to be open to spiritual adventures. And in sacred spaces, I think, you know, well, we often think of chapels and places with wonderful stained glass. And we've made a sacred space here out of the George R. Brown Convention Center. Wouldn't you agree? But also, there are other places where great events may have taken place. I'm thinking, for instance, of Gettysburg or Waterloo or perhaps the Normandy beaches, or maybe a visit to the Vietnam Memorial in Washington. I remember someone told me to take at least four handkerchiefs when I went there, and I did not think that four was enough. In these places, we may also be close to the sacrificial courage of others and be deeply inspired by that and hear the Lord speaking to us through the courage of others who have gone before us. So this is also an opportunity for prayer. The reign of God is available. It is here at hand. We experience this in so many different places, in so many different ways, but our willingness is what counts. The Lord is always wanting to speak to us. We are the ones that have to open up and allow that to happen. Our willingness is most important of all. And as part of that continuing surrender, I have tried to describe the the experience of prayer with some of its doubts and difficulties along the way as an encouragement to others. I had so much joy and enthusiasm in making many of these life discoveries, and I thought, how can I share this with other people? And to do that, I would mention to you that when we are in this wonderful net of grace that we are speaking of, we may encounter at least seven, maybe there are more, but I took a biblical number, seven, and identified what I would call seven different ways that we experience prayer or moods when we are living in the net of grace. And they can come in any order. They're not a sequence to be followed or any particular uh, description exactly of how to proceed, but rather discoveries of places that we may find ourselves when we are in dialogue with God. There is beginning. John Henry Newman said, the most perfect Christian is ever but beginning and comes home again like the prodigal son to be forgiven again and again. So that is beginning, and it it happens over and over in the Christian life and in the life of prayer, that we need to renew and renovare and dedicate ourselves again to this experience of prayer and overcome the sense that prayer might be a boring or a tiresome duty, but plunge in to the wonderful splash of the experience of God creatively, yielding uh, a mood in which we are able to set aside and fully surrender ourselves and get rid of false expectations that we may have had from the past or painful hurts or experiences or false ideas of God Uh, the hard taskmaster and so forth, the one who constantly wants us to measure up. Sweep those aside and enter into the loving presence of God, rediscovering the beauty of God's love in yielding. And this is a creative process when, uh, when, uh, when we appropriate prayer for ourselves and make it our own. There is darkness. I I must tell you there is darkness. And some people describe it as dryness or times of trial. But sometimes darkness is just a long, boring patch when nothing much seems to be happening in our relationship to God. And we wonder whether it will ever end. It's an abyss of sorts, but it's not always romantic, and we can't always explain it to our friends and relatives. But to name this darkness is to put ourselves with Jesus in the school of prayer. He experienced darkness. Little darkness when his disciples didn't listen or when whole towns turned away from him and big darkness in the garden or on the cross. 
By placing ourselves with Jesus, we gain the strength to persevere. And uh, I was uh, reminded in reading the Community of Prayer for Love chapter of that text, James 1.4, which Dallas renders as patience in trials will make us fully functional. I like that. So for darkness, patience is the recommended practice and perseverance to continue in prayer, even when it's not always full of bells and whistles and lightning flashes. Uh, to, to draw a box around darkness with the crayon of our prayer. What I call transparency is merely that kind of clarified vision that Jesus wanted his disciples to have. And he speaks of this, and this is, of course, part of the transformation that is described so well in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Friendship in the Spirit I've already touched on. This is, of course, the binding power, the friendship of the saints, Paul and Timothy. And it's akin to the experience of love that we will have in heaven when the time comes. Shakespeare has a term that I love, hoops of steel. Those friends thou hast, and their adoption tried, gather them to thy soul with hoops of steel. So this for me is a good uh, description of friendship in the spirit and the binding power of God's love and our love for each other, how it holds us together and leads us into the procession or the parade where we can send up a delightful fragrance. Fear of heights. You remember when Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, send someone else. That's an experience we sometimes have in our prayer when we feel that more is being asked of us by God than we can possibly do. And that tension that we experience is also an aspect of our life of prayer. And then most of all, and most descriptive and most overarching, or at least I hope it to be, is the word clinging, by which I really mean a kind of hugging, a mutual embrace in which the Lord wants to hold us very close and we learn gradually to respond to that great love. And that becomes a sure part of our connectedness with God when we are praying people and when we continually renew our understanding of the life of prayer. I would mention three scriptures that have been useful to me in understanding how expanded our vision and our context becomes when we have entered into this wonderful life of grace. Romans 14, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That kind of understanding of the continuity of our life here and now and our life to come is an understanding that can be enlarged by our experience of prayer. Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There is a strengthening as we are become more deeply people of prayer. And Galatians 2.20, differently translated in many places. True, I am living here and now, this mortal life, but my real life is the faith I have in the Son of God. All that is descriptive of the life of prayer. Not every time of prayer is full of consolation. I think yearning is a constant of our prayer lives. And yet we begin to taste the love that we will live in the resurrection when our knowing will be like that of the angels and our friendships will be simple and free. For the more God's love flows into me, the more that love overflows from me into you and into the next person until we are held together in the current of joy. And the reaching and the asking is a token of the destination. There is always a deep longing within us that cuts like a knife, a yearning that stirs even when the air is flooded with sunshine and when we are dazzled with light. But in the middle of our gratitude for the beauty of things, we know there is something yet to be given. There's an emptiness that is a mark and a reminder of God, a place that he will come fully to live in us. And the days flow and the seasons turn and we hold on and for dear life we cling. Time slips through our fingers and we surrender and we are reconciled and we accept more and more what is. And we are held tighter and tighter in the knowledge that we are loved forever and a day, held close and cherished, rescued, forgiven and redeemed. 
And in our prayer, we are Jacob, for the angels are climbing up to God and down to us. We are climbing Jacob's ladder, and the energy is both ascending and descending, striking life into our hearts and killing us with the promise of bliss. And this I wish for each of you. Amen. Is D.W. here? Dallas? He may be praying. I don't know. Oh, there's so much we can talk about, isn't there? Friendship. Let's talk about friendship. Oh, I, you know, that makes me think. I'm going to take a gamble because I'm not certain I know what I, even what I'm talking about. But I, <laughs> but I, I wonder. This is a new thing. <laughs> you notice that had an exclamation or a question mark exclamation there? I just want to hear the two of you talk for a minute. I know we're, we're moving to prayer, but Simone Vale. Yes. And uh, am I right that she was a leading figure in phenomenology? Is that right, Dallas? No, no, that's no. Edith Stein. Oh, Edith Stein, I'm sorry. Well, let me hear you yeah, two talk about Simone. Edith Stein. Edith Stein was in phenomenology. But what isn't known widely about Simone Vale was that she was a classmate of Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, and uh, he flunked his qualifying exams. <laughs> and she was so smart. You know, and Simone de Beauvoir, the same class. Yeah, but she was not, not a believer. No, she was not a believer. Yeah. But Simone Weil just, just made them all look sick. <laughs> you know. I mean, think of praying the Lord's Prayer in Greek in the great patch. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's her. Well, Tell I, me about your interest in Simone. Oh, I don't know. I think, it, you know, what happens, as I'm sure, well, you are living proof of it, is you get lighted up on this subject, and then you want to find everything in the world that you can read and every possible writer. And I think, you know, in the 60s or the 70s or something, Simone Vale's work came into print, yes. and we all read it. And she was a wonderful person of prayer, and she uh, had a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of the persecutions against Judaism in her lifetime, she did not accept formal baptism. But since many of us believe in a baptism of desire, you see, uh, that's, uh, her heart was there. And uh, she's a wonderful, wonderful, inspiring person. Yes, and, and she was so incredibly deep in her understanding of human life. You know, the book I think that was first was The Need for Roots. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just talking about the uprooted condition of human beings, which is a, a beautiful description of the lost and fallen condition of humanity. And she really knew that. And, uh, and she was a, a brilliant person, but a person who never... Well, in a, in a good sense, which in the best of French tradition you understand well, she did not think abstractly. She had great power of abstraction, but she didn't think abstractly. She thought concretely. And everything she saw in the light of concrete human existence. Okay. I, would, uh, I don't know. You probably have a lot no, of questions no. in your pocket, but I just wanted to say that one of the great uh, breakthroughs for me in reading... Uh, the chapter on prayer and the divine conspiracy was this statement that prayer is request yes. and that all of the prayer is built on and flows out of request. And then there's another statement in there that I just adore, personal negotiation. Prayer is personal negotiation. Yes. It's an encounter with God. Mm-hmm. And I thought immediately of Abraham Yes. Praying for the city. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, well, would you save the city yes. if there were this many people and the interaction there? Yes. So I, I really appreciate just those two particular phrases just knocked me flat. Dallas, could you... And Abraham quit before God did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he quit God. I don't know why well, Abraham, I guess he thought, well, I better stop. But it's here. really fun to talk to you, Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> Speak a little about, the, you have that section, the power of the request, uh, and, and in, in a community of love. Now, I, help us just contextually, I know we're moving quickly through, and you say, you speak of the whole progression, and the, that is, 
the righteous, the contrast between the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and righteousness of the kingdom, that is the dikaiosini of the kingdom, mm-hmm. and that we don't, uh, we don't go through life by demands, we don't go through life by manipulation and so forth, and, but then how do we begin to move in, and, and that's what I want you to... By standing before others openly. Illustration. In a, if you have a retreat, a silent retreat, where people are together but not talking, one of the most wonderful things to see is how a request gets made. And it gets made because there is a person there to whom others are attentive in order to know what they need. And the request is the mere presence. It's the mere presence. And that is the expression of the deepest law of the universe, which is not, you know, gravity, electromagnetism, short, strong force, weak force. It's love. It's love. It's love. And uh, that's the way love works. Uh, Love wants to be asked. Love wants to ask. Love wants to give. And that's the deepest law of the universe, the most powerful thing in human relationships, which is manifested by the fact of how we will want to avoid requests sometimes, just to avoid the pull of the request. We all know about the dog watching you eat a sandwich and that sort of thing. See, that's, that is deep. That's deep. That's request. That's why Jesus said, "Ask." Well, and the, when when on the personal negotiation, then you went, I think, immediately to the the woman and the judge. You know, yes. wearing out, Absolutely. wearing out the judge. Right. And and I, you know, he his concrete way of teaching us about prayer mm-hmm. is so practical. And of course, we want to get very elevated all the time. Yes, and that's so good because that teaches how the request stands there. The request stands there. It isn't like dive bombing, putting money in a Coke machine. It stands there. just stands there. That's it. And it waits. And see, that's a part of the personal negotiation. That gives time for things to go back and forth, changes that are needed to be made. The request just stands there and stands there and waits. And the power of that is so great. You know Frank Laubach's book, Prayer, the mightiest force on earth. That's, that's exactly right. The mightiest force on earth. It moves things in the area that is more fundamental. And again, that is why in nearly all of the prayer, se- prayer sections in the Bible, you will see first creator mentioned, and then prayer. Say and that again. The first it will mention the creator like even in the great prayer in Acts where the room was shaken. First they start out with, God, you made everything. right? Okay. So they're addressing the most fundamental part. That's not just to butter him up. <laughs> you know, it's, it's to help us address yeah. rightly. Okay. You know. Emily, uh, could you share a little bit? You made just the tiniest reference to Hannah. Yes. And that experience that you write about in Wilderness Time, which, by the way, is a wonderful book on retreat. Wilderness Time. You go rush and get it. <laughs> but could you share a little of that? How? Well, I, I just, uh, actually, I don't know anything about what it means, but I did have a wonderful experience with Hannah and Samuel. Uh, when I was first getting excited about Life of Prayer, I took... I, had, I was working in a busy office and highly stressed environment. I had three personal days a year. And I took one of my personal days, and instead of going shopping, I made a retreat. And I made a retreat in which I had very little structure to the day. And in the morning at church, the reading was about Hannah. And, and I started... What church was this? This Tell was... Them. Well, it was the church in New York, yeah, yeah Our Lady Queen of Martyrs okay. Church. Yeah. And uh, that morning's reading, I just simply took that, and then I went with that reading 
all day. And where it led me was to read the entire chapter with Hannah and then to go on into Samuel's story of being called and, you know, not Eli and not knowing the voice and all of that. Now, this story of Samuel was my favorite childhood story in the Bible. And I didn't know that's where I was going, but I entered into the story becoming first Hannah praying in the temple and then staying with Hannah as long as I could and praying the canticle of Hannah, which follows, praying that, and then moving on into being Samuel, entering into his story, and being Samuel then, and discovering this wonderful improvisational way of praying and experiencing God's love in that. And then I went home to my house in Kew Gardens, Queens, at the end of the day, and I had, as some people have heard me say, a number of devout Jewish neighbors. And they found out about my interest in Hannah, and one of them said, Emily, did you know that Hannah invented prayer? And I said, surely not. I mean, there must have been prayer, but there was a temple already. What they were trying to tell me was that for them, she is seen as the originator of contemplative prayer. Remember, she's praying without words and silently in the temple and waiting for the Lord. And of course, Hannah asked. And then as you move into the Samuel story, you see that negotiation, that time. Learning the voice of God, learning to distinguish it. And Dallas, you have uh, in uh, in search of guidance some I feel some of the most helpful uh, instruction on hearing the voice of God. Do you remember some of that? The first sentence on page fifty is. I'm not sure. I can't. I am actually uh, thinking the part of the, you're thinking the way about. of distinguishing the voice of God, much the same way we distinguish yes. human voices. Yes, uh, that's one of the dimensions of living in this negotiating relationship: is you learn to recognize the voice, you you recognize there's a quality to it, quality. there's a kind of weight to it, weight, a tone. It's never, it never gets screechy and and angry and. Uh, Excellent. It's very hear heavy, this now? it's peaceful. Quality, tone, and content. weight, and then content. Now explain that. Well, um, content, of course, has to do with the kinds of things that would be said. I know Richard so well that if there were certain things said, I would know it was Richard. <laughs> and he's the same with me. And, when, and you know others the same way. That's content. Uh, but then there is tone, and there is weight, and there's quality to it. And we, we pick up on all of those things through this process. Right. And so you know my de- definition of prayer is talking to God about what we're doing together. Right. And uh, I think in that we learn to recognize. It's very safe then. It's very safe. Uh, we don't become infallible or anything like right. that. It's very safe. Uh, just on that tone, can I just give you a little, Just a, this is just something to unpack that a little. God draws and encourages. Satan pushes and condemns. You know the difference? See? It's that kind of thing that he's talking about. And as we uh, walk through Scripture we begin to catch a sense of the tone of God. Remember it was said of Messiah that he would not break a bruised reed nor quench a smoldering wick. See, Jesus would never snuff out the smallest hope, never crush the needy. And if we can understand that great doctrine of the New Testament, the Christ-likeness of God, God is like Jesus. And if you get that, that will help a great deal in your understanding of prayer and of how God works with you. That's right. Yeah. That's you know, right. I forgot to, to say something, though. You know, it occurred to me when we are talking about Hannah. Uh, there's a miracle in the story that Samuel is born. Yes, you know? right. And that's the other thing is just accepting that power is very important, and we forget to do that. Yeah, yes, indeed. And we give time to it, you know. Let it stay, stay in, stay with it. So important. Yeah. 
Uh, let's take a question, perhaps. Um, here's, here's one that I felt is very helpful. Can a person love God and doubt God's existence at the same time? Now, this has a lot to do with prayer, doesn't it? Uh, and let's just work with that a little bit. This person says, I do that. I love God and doubt God. Maybe we could just talk a little bit. Well, don't, aren't the Psalms sort of like that sometimes? <laughs> I mean, I think that's one of the things that I think is such a gift in the Psalms is that there are low points. Out of the depths I cry to you. And uh, although it's not expressed specifically as doubt, certainly as discouragement. Mm-hmm. It's being at a really low point. And Jesus used this psalm. And we know that there are heights and depths in our relationship to God. And I think that, you know, that doesn't mean we wouldn't want to work through those. Mm -hmm. But I think to feel that you're always on this cheerful, high, totally confident, relaxed level, that's not the human condition. You know, today, today, I uh, just, I, you know, there's this, there's this quest for the holy grin <laughs> all of the time. Uh, that I'm, uh, I just have to say, it's just that's just holy baloney. <laughs> and uh, because Emily spoke about the dark night of the soul and darkness as a definite aspect of prayer, and. Uh, and we don't try to rescue people when they're in that. A good companion question is, can you pray to God and doubt that he exists? The answer is obviously yes. It may be better if you don't doubt, but you know the (laughs) multitudes of people actually have been saved by the prayer that we call the atheist prayer. Oh my God, if there is a God, save my soul if I have a soul. Now, I'm telling you, many people have been saved by that prayer. And the reason why is because it is prayed out of the depths. Deep calls to deep. The deep calls to deep, and God answers. And I often tell people, I can give you God's address. It's the end of your rope. (laughs) You see, that prayer is prayed at the end of your rope. And, and we can love God and doubt his existence. That love will be a kind of wistful love. But we can. And, uh, you know, uh, we, when, we, when we have faith and we don't have faith or whatever, we're not proving anything to God. We don't have to prove anything. At, at that address, I, could I give you a prayer? It might help you. I mean, some really struggle with... How do you pray, compose a prayer? How do the words work? And I want to give you a prayer at the end of the rope. It's a very liturgical prayer, so you may want to write it down. It goes this way. Oh, God. Help! That's it. That's it. (laughs) And that goes with Paul's, Whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You do it like that. Now, here's a question that I think is helpful. When we spoke, uh, Dallas, and you said, we seek God long enough so that when we find him, we will be able to stand it. Yes. And he asks the question, are we there, or at what point? But unpack that a little in terms of, you know, what, why the necessity of being able, you know, the process and... How we well, are in that. When, we, when we first start thinking of God, we're basically in the position of the idolater. We think of God who might be helpful in our projects. Uh, <laughs> a little thing for God to do. So we get the image of God as the cosmic butler, the great aspirin in the sky, that sort of thing. So it's all in terms of us. I mean, think of James and John sending mommy, you know, to Jesus and saying, now, you know, my boy's one on the front row. <laughs> And they came and said, well, you know, we'd like this, that, and the other. Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, in time they did, (laughs) you know. But it's a matter of pulling the things in a straight for God. 
See, we're, we're all wired up wrongly by our experience in the world and perhaps deeper stuff that we don't even know about that's working in the, a fallen world. And so we come to God with all of our prayers and all of our needs and all that sort of thing. Uh, but God uh, is faithful to us and as we stay in that posture, we change. And uh, that temporal elongation of prayer. And that's why Jesus teaches perseverance in prayer. Stay with him. Stay with him. Don't you think Peter's just the most wonderful example yes. of a man who changed yeah. so much over and a doubter, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and re- rebellious along the way. And that you see it, and that's, you see it in other people. You can't see the change in yourself. Right, and, and I think it would be best for me to kind of fill in for these, the are you or there. I've known Dallas for 29 years, and I just want to say, in terms of somebody whose soul is prepared to contain the power of God and the knowledge of God, I've not seen a soul greater who's able. Now, he is embarrassed to hear me say that. I've known Emily about 13, I think, 12, 13 years, so a little less perhaps, and yet here is someone who has grown into a life of prayer from the uh, world of business. Her description of coming up with the advertising campaign for Alcoa aluminum, qualities of aluminum, uh, and how that is a spiritual experience to make those commercials and work with that. And, and then the, the stepping in that she went through uh, with her mother's death, and she wrote a book out of that, uh, Homeward Voyage. Is that right? Homeward Voyage. And watching that and listening, I can tell you that they, their souls have grown. And, you know, that's a great project, isn't it? We're, we're not really in charge of it, you know. Yeah. And that's why I think for each of us it's just a matter of staying there, hanging in. We don't know where we're going. Yeah. Our growth is not something under our management. You know, but we know where to stay, and we stay there, and then God knows when we're ready. And that will go on for eternity. You've been faithful over a few things. Childhood is a wonderful uh way of looking at this. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're growing, when we're children, and the adults come and say, how you've grown. Mm-hmm. And we, didn't, we have no idea <laughs> how that went. That's, that's true. And, uh, true. You, do, you know, we, we have to listen to them say it, you know, but we don't get it. And I think there's so many experiences in childhood that are analogs for what the spiritual life is like. Don't you think? I do. And by the way, I want to read this translation that Dallas has given us of the Lord's Prayer Mm -hmm. in just a moment. But first, you all don't know... How'd I do? You all don't know this, but... (laughs) Y'all. Emily is something of a... certainly a, a deep student of, if not a scholar, of John Milton. So can you give us a Milton quote? She... I didn't prepare her for this. A Milton quote that might uh, step into some of what we have been working on. Thousands at his bidding. Thousands at his bidding speed. And post or land. (laughs) (laughs) They also serve who only stand and (laughs) wait. Isn't it wonderful? (laughs) Well, you can say something like, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. (laughs) How about this? I I get my turn. (laughs) I love it. Do do you recall that it's Satan who says the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven? For Milton, the mind was the great source of joy and wonder, but also a great source of entrapment. And I think that, you know, that's, that line has stayed with me always. And then, so when we join to that putting on the mind of Christ, that's when we really come home. Lovely. Yeah. 
listen to the way the Lord's Prayer now has been given, and you want to turn and set down things and be in an attitude, a mode, a posture of prayer, let us pray. Dear Father, always near us, may your name be treasured and loved. May your rule be completed in us. May your will be done here on earth in just the way it is done in heaven. Give us today the things we need today. And forgive us our sins and impositions on you as we are forgiving all who in any way offend us. Please don't put us through trials, but deliver us from everything bad, because you are the one in charge, and you have all the power, and the glory, too, is all yours forever, which is just the way we want it. Amen. Well, there you have it. Emily's authored a number of books, including Doors into Prayer and Invitation, Green Leaves for Later Years, A Spiritual Path of Wisdom, and she co-authored Ernavari's Spiritual Classics. As always, thanks for listening, and have a great week.